Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Martin Luther was a German monk. And if there is one German word which best describes the whole of his life, it is this word which he himself often used in reference to his experience. Onfectum. A-N-F-E-C-H-T-U-N-G. Onfectum. There's no exact English equivalent to this word. One biographer describes it like this. He says, Onfectum may be a trial sent by God to test man or an assault by the devil to destroy man. It is all the doubt turmoil, pain, tremor, panic, despair, desolation, and desperation which invade the spirit of man. That will summarize Martin Luther's life in many ways. We say that the formal cause of the Reformation, the framework, if you like, within which the Reformation happened was usually have it up here, sola scriptura, scripture alone. It was the authority of scripture. John Wycliffe and John Huss, whom we've considered in this class so far, that was their main interest. It was the formal cause of the Reformation. It was the authority. Who bears the ultimate spiritual authority? Pope and councils, the institutional church, or is it the word of God? Now, Martin Luther will care quite deeply about this formal cause of the Reformation. He will care about the authority of Scripture, but he will not start there and he will not end there. Because within this framework, there is a material cause. There is the matter that, for Martin Luther especially, drives him to Reformation. And that matter, we say, is justification by faith. But the only reason Luther gets to that point is because of this prior cause, onfectum, turmoil of soul before the Almighty God. And thus it is a fit summary of his life and Reformation experience. It all starts with this onfectum. Because in an age when the institutional church that Luther knew was reaching higher and higher in its political claims, in its earthly power, in its rule over emperors and empires and kings, in its enormous wealth, as it was going up and up like some great Gothic cathedral, there was a German monk in Erfurt, face down in his monastic cell, in utter poverty and in utter misery of spirit and anguish, realizing his own sinfulness, littleness, and nothingness between before the greatness that is the almighty God of the universe. There is none of this worldly confidence in this monk as is found in the institutional church and it makes a strong contrast. Luther in misery will cry out to God. In unfectum of soul will cry out to God and God will hear him and God will pick him up and make him stand. And so Martin Luther saw what the glamorous church of his day never could see, which is that the way to true glory is not through political manipulation or the acquiring of wealth. It's through the cross. Before the crown, there is the cross. The way to glory is the Via Dolorosa. It is the way of pain, which Jesus, so many years before Luther, had himself walked before ascending into heaven to receive his crown. Luther knew that no man or woman can truly stand before God unless that person first has gone through the valley of humiliation, the pain of soul, to realize your own sinfulness before God, your own nothingness before Him. The church on earth had never realized this. and Therefore, she was blind. She chose the path of glory. She chose a theology of glory. Martin Luther chose a theology of the cross. 
He endured the unfectun. He joined with Christ, suffering upon the ground. And it was because he suffered in this way, in his soul, that he could then afterward rise up. He came to understand what true glory is. It's not a kingdom established on this earth. It is a kingdom that Christ has promised to those who in desperation cry out to him. This unfectum, which today we might try to counsel or even medicate away, is the spark that led to the Reformation, that changed the face of Europe and really of the world in a way that almost nothing else has. It is said that more has been written about Martin Luther than any other human in all of history besides Jesus Christ himself. Don't know how we measure that, but probably that is true. Luther really fulfilled that statement Christ gave about himself when he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it suffers, if there is death, if there is that pain, then it bears much fruit. This was the spark of the Reformation. And it just so happened to find its greatest concentration in one German monk, Martin Luther, who we begin to consider today. So let's begin. Where did Martin Luther come from? Uh, the simple answer is Eisleben, E-I-S-L-E-B-E-N, in what we know today as Germany. I say we know today as Germany. Germany in the 1500s, and Martin Luther is born at the end of the 1400s, in the 1500s, 1400s, Germany was just coming to an awareness of its own Germanness. This was true of many nations in Europe. There was not this great sense of our own uh, identity as a nation. It was just beginning to develop, coming to a head. Part of the reason for this was because Germany, if you will, this region we know as Germany today, was a part of two larger institutions which united much of Europe. One, of course, was the Roman Catholic Church. Anywhere you went on the European continent, you were within the realm of the Roman Catholic Church. The second was called the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, professors like to say the irony is that it was not really an empire, it was not really Roman, and it was not really holy. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was the Holy Roman Empire. It was a sort of European Union of the time uniting several nations, including what we know now as Germany. Therefore, German self-awareness was just developing as something separate from these larger bodies. This will be important in Luther's life. Luther was born a German of Germans on November the 10th, 1483. Since November the 10th was, in the church's calendar, the day to celebrate St. Martin... His parents named him Martin, Martin Luther. And shortly, very shortly after his birth, they moved from Eisleben to Mansfeld, still in German territory. Luther's parents were hardy, backwood German folk. They beat him, sometimes till he bled, but that was fairly common in his day. And to really understand Martin Luther, you have to know this about him and his upbringing. Luther will show an incredible faith in God that somewhat teeters on the verge of backward German folk superstition. If you told Martin Luther that the milk spoiled because a goblin did it, you and I would laugh. He might not laugh. He might take that very seriously. There is always this element of superstition in Luther very close to his legitimate faith. Now, Luther's father, Hans, had escaped the miseries of peasant existence in his day. If you were a peasant in that day, you lived in squalor. Hans had gotten together with friends and purchased a mine and then owned several mines. And therefore, though still technically a peasant, he raised himself up beyond the squalor of peasanthood. And because he was part of this, I don't know, you could call it a rising middle class, a rising peasant class, he wanted his son, Martin Luther to raise the family even further up to provide security in their old age. 
So noting his son's intellectual abilities, he sent him off to study to become a lawyer. Because in that day, as in this, that provides some financial security. And so, at the age of 17, in May of 1501, beginning of the 16th century, Martin is sent to a German town, Erfurt, the university there, to study to become a lawyer. Now it's here that unfectum, turmoil of soul, enters into our story. You see, the Roman Catholic Church did not abandon every part of the Bible's message. It instead chose the parts of the message, whether consciously or not, I don't know the motives, but it ended up choosing parts of the message which were most convenient politically for the church. This is clearest in its emphasis on judgment. Now the medieval world was already a very cruel sort of place. Every generation or so you would have a plague sweep across Europe and kill incredible numbers of people. That was commonplace. There were not scientific understandings of things that were happening, so it was a breeding ground for superstition. If there were natural disasters, it was because God was angry, he was wrathful, and the church came alongside and really supported these conclusions. Now, I'm not saying that a plague or a natural disaster cannot be an act of God to bring judgment. Very well may be the case. But you see, there was a political reason for the church to support this interpretation of what was happening. If you lived in Luther's day, you would be tempted to see in the Muslim threat, the judgment of God. Or in a plague, the judgment of God. Or in a sickness that you cannot explain, the judgment of God. And the church had a vested interest in supporting this view. And why is that? Because the church held the keys to the kingdom. The church taught there is no salvation outside the church. If God is angry, wrathful, and judging you for your sins, then you need to come to the institutional Roman Catholic Church, for it is the only place you can find salvation. If you were terrified of God's judgment, if you were terrified of Christ, which was very common in that day, he was not seen as some soft-haired, blue-eyed, peaceful, gentle person. He was wrathful, and if you were terrified of him, and you would not go to him. You would not maybe even go to Mary, queen of heaven herself, for she was often portrayed as a wrathful queen. You would go to the church. You would go to the saints of the church. You would go to the church's teachings, and the church needed to support that. So judgment was often proclaimed. Now it's important to note, as I said, the wrath of God and His inviolable justice are important attributes of Almighty God. In our day, we've swung on the pendulum to the other side. So we have a special reason to emphasize these since they've been lost in the culture. But nonetheless, the Roman Catholic Church used even these attributes of God to manipulate for power. Because really, once you felt the weight of your sin, once you knew the weight the pinch of conscience, and you understood, you experienced this sort of unfecting in your own soul before God in this frightening world, then the gospel says you should now receive the good news that Christ has died so you, by faith in Him, may be justified or made right with God. But the Roman Catholic Church would not benefit from that good news. Therefore, the wrath of God was presented, and then, instead of a justification freely by faith, the church taught you could be justified, but it's by works, and not just any works, works done in the context of the Roman Catholic Church, and usually for the political benefit of the Roman Catholic Church. This is the background you have to bear in mind as we return now to this young Martin Luther. Began to study at Erfurt at 17, now he's 21 years old. He has a Bachelor of, of Arts, he has a Master of Arts. And now he's studying intently to become a lawyer. He goes to visit his parents, July 2nd, 1505. He's returning from a visit to his parents, coming to Erfurt, and something monumental happens. There is a thunderstorm as he travels. 
as a medieval man, Luther is not going to think of a thunderstorm in the way that we do. He's not going to think of it as just a natural phenomenon. This is the wrath of God. And here is Luther thrown about in this terrible storm. And every crack across the sky is an expression of God's displeasure against this young worm of a man, this 21-year-old Martin Luther, who is nothing before God, who is filled with sin. That's how Luther is going to experience the storm. And so in desperation, as a bolt of lightning strikes very close to Luther, he cries out, not to God, but he cries out what now is an infamous phrase. Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Europe will never be the same after that vow. In reality, this is not Luther turning to God. This is Luther turning to the church. He's desperate. So that year... 1505, he leaves the university, he gives up his studies as a lawyer, and he enters the Augustinian cloister of monks there in Erfurt. After a year, probably, as a novice, he takes his official oath. He is now a monk. He has fulfilled his oath to St. Anne, who was, by the way, patron saint of minors, so he probably knew her, her from growing up in a mining family. But there was at this point some relief for Luther of that unfectune before this wrathful God. Because it was believed, though maybe not quite officially taught, but it was believed in that day, this was officially taught, that baptism washed away original sin. That's why you baptized an infant a few days after the infant was born because you were washing away original sin. Which, by the way, only the Catholic Church teaches that. It's not a Presbyterian or Baptist or anybody else view, but that was believed. So they baptize the infant, wash away original sin, but then, of course, you accumulate sins after that. But it was believed, not officially in the church, but most people believed that if you became a monk, it was like a second baptism. It was as though all your sins were washed clean and you had this sort of fresh slate. Everyone knew in the medieval world, if you wanted to get serious about getting to heaven, you became a monk. And so here's Luther quite serious about religion. He is a monk. And during that first year, he starts to feel okay about his soul. Later he would write, during your first year in the monastery, the devil is very quiet. But during the second year, this did not prove true. The second year as a monk, Martin Luther is ordained as a priest. Which means he must now officiate his first Mass. The church, you remember, taught transubstantiation, meaning when the priest took this wafer and raised it into the air for everyone to adore, at that moment, though it may not look like it, it may not taste like it, that wafer becomes in reality, in its substance, the physical, actual body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther believed that. So when it came time for him to do his first Mass, he was terrified. This may have been the first time in his life he ever prayed directly to God, for the words of the Mass were directed to God. He says later, he was praying, We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And he says, reflecting later, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. Somehow Luther gets through the Mass. And his father, Hans, even though Hans had been furious when his son had abandoned his studies in law, jeopardized the future of the family to become a monk, nonetheless seems to have somewhat reconciled to the idea he came to witness this first Mass in 1507. And he watches the Mass, comes with 20 horsemen, watches the Mass, afterwards sits down to a meal with his son Luther, and Luther probes him a bit, Father, why were you so upset that I became a monk? This is such a nice and quiet life. And you imagine Hans is trying to keep himself composed, reconciling to this idea, but this is too much for him. It seems that Luther was trying to appeal to him, saying, I believe God called me in the thunderstorm. And so Hans, his father, in a burst of anger, tells his son, 
Well, God grant that it was not an apparition of the devil. Martin is already an unstable young man. These kinds of thoughts are not going to help him as a monk. In his few years in the Augustinian cloister in Erfurt, Luther determined that he would work as hard as he possibly could in the Augustinian order, which was a stricter order, to earn his way to heaven, to justify himself, to prove his father wrong, to show that this was the right course of action, and to show God he really means it so that he could be accepted by this wrathful God. Luther later wrote of that time, he says, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, this is not an exaggeration, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Martin would fast several days at a time. All the early pictures we have of Martin Luther, he is bone thin. He would throw off his blanket in the cold. He did what was in him. He was trying to show God he was worthy of salvation. And the church, of course, provided ways for salvation. One of the great sacraments of the church was confession. Confession was meant to give you a sense of peace. You confess your sin, and if you confess your specific sin to a priest, then you will be absolved. The problem was that officially, in order to be absolved of your sin, you had to confess every sin you committed. No general blanket confessions. And you had to mean it. No problem for maybe most of the monks. Do the best you can. And that's all right, but for a man like Martin Luther, who's always thinking, brilliant man, whose mind is racing, and who is deeply troubled, this is too much. Martin Luther would spend sometimes six hours in the confessional, wherever it was, confessing his sins. This was exasperating to those listening to him confess their sins. In fact, one person told him, Luther, go away and don't come back until you have an an interesting sin to confess, a real sin to confess. But Luther was racking his conscience, which was encouraged in that day, racking his conscience for everything, and he would leave after six hours and remember something he forgot. This did not prove to be any comfort to his unfectung of soul. This only increased it, exasperated it. He's wondering, where can I find relief? And he's finding that it's not in the church that he so much trusted. This is only amplified in the year 1510. In that year, Martin Luther is chosen to go on a sort of business trip to Rome itself, the capital of the Holy Roman Empire, the capital of the Roman Catholic Church where the Pope resides, where if anywhere relief may be found, certainly it is here. He goes and what he finds is deep disappointment. Luther certainly already was aware of corruption in the church, but the levels of corruption that he found in Rome were amazing, especially among the priests and the monks. There were relics everywhere in the city where you could go and witness what was purported to be a piece of the cross, some other biblical item, or a bone of a dead saint. And if you paid a fee, you could look on the relic and you would have years taken off of purgatory. Purgatory was, I think we've mentioned before, an invention of the church. It was a holding place in between hell and heaven. When you died, because the church was based on works, you probably didn't work hard enough to get into heaven. Very few did, except saints. So you would actually go into a holding place in the middle, purgatory, a place of fire and torment, but it's fire to purge you, to get the last sins out so you can get to heaven. Usually, the amount of time that you were said to have to spend there was enormous. We're talking thousands or maybe more years in a horrible place of purgatory to get to heaven. But if you looked at these relics and paid a fee, you could get there quicker. You'd get years off. Luther himself, in a sort of famous scene, 
climbed up the Scala Sancta, the holy stairs, which were said to have been taken from Pilate's palace and brought to Rome, the very stairs that Jesus walked. And to climb up, if you climbed up on your hands, or at least he stood at the top of, I guess, and if you climbed up on your hands and your knees and possibly kissed each step and prayed on our Father on each step and you got to the 28th step at the top, then the church said, I think with a fee included as well, you could get any soul you choose that's already dead out of purgatory into heaven. So Luther famously does this, climbs up on hands and knees, and when he comes to the top, having seen all the money-making schemes of the church and the great corruption, he famously says, who knows whether this is so? And in that spirit, he returns dejected to Erfurt, to his cloister. Luther cannot find relief for his soul. Now, the one gleam of light in this dark night of Luther's soul is a man named Johann von Staupitz. S-T-A-U-P-I-T-Z, Staupitz. Staupitz is the vicar of the Augustinian order, he's in charge of it, and he becomes a sort of spiritual guide and father to Luther, encouraging, he's a mystic, and he's encouraging Luther away from these strict ways of thinking. The most important thing Staupitz does, besides just encouraging Luther, is he notices his intellectual abilities. Luther later said, if it had not been for Dr. Staupitz, I should have sunk in hell. But Staupitz notices his intellectual ability and therefore tells Luther that he's sending him away to Wittenberg. In German, the W's or V's, don't know why that is. It's how languages work. So it starts with a W, I-T-T-E-N-B-E-R-G, Wittenberg, also in Germany. He's sending him away to Wittenberg because there's a university that has recently been established there by the elector or prince of Saxony in Germany. His name's Frederick the Wise. We'll see him more. He started a university, and Luther is to go to become a doctor of theology and then to lecture on the Bible. Staupitz is thinking, we need to get this young man out of his own head, which is always good counsel, actually. So he sends him off. This takes place in the year 1511. Luther, of course, on his own part, doesn't think himself stable enough to be a good horse, much less a doctor of theology teaching the Bible to others, but Staupitz is out of him. Off he goes in 1511. The next year, 1512, he becomes a doctor of theology, He had already studied to get his bachelor and his master's before. By 1513, he was lecturing on the Bible. This is where it gets very interesting. He begins lecturing on the book of Psalms. Then he goes to Romans and then to Galatians. He does this between 1513 and 1517. At this point, I wish we could say with more certainty the timing of the events that follow in Luther's thought because they're so important. But we don't actually know the timing. So the things I'm about to say, we don't know exactly when Luther thought what he thought. Was it before the nailing of the 95 Theses that we're coming to in 1517 or after or during? We don't fully know. But let me at least begin to trace the logic. He reteaches Psalms later. That's why it's hard to get the timing here. But he starts with the book of Psalms. And it may have been at his first teaching that he comes across this logic. He's studying Psalms and he comes to Psalm chapter 22. This is the Psalm Jesus quotes from the cross and it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here Luther finds the sentiment of his own soul for his whole life. That's exactly how he's felt. That's been exactly young Luther's cry. Why has God forsaken me? Luther said that when he was in the cloister at Erfurt, he didn't love God, he hated God. He felt so far from God because here were all these rules he had to keep. God throws him on the earth, says, keep all these rules. He can't, it's impossible, and then throws him into agonies of hell or at least purgatory. He hated God, but he didn't want to hate God. So this is his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther reads that in Psalm 22 and knows Jesus cried this from the cross. Now this makes no sense. 
Of course this is Luther's experience. He's a worm and not a man. Why would Jesus, the blessed Son of God, who has more merit before God than anyone, this perfect and blessed Son of God, why would he ever cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luther sees here a sympathy in Jesus. Somehow this man, Jesus, knows what I've gone through in some way. A mysterious distance from the Father. Eventually, Luther concludes, along with Paul in Romans and Galatians, that what's happened on the cross is that Jesus feels this isolation from the Father somehow because he has taken Luther's place. He has stepped in the place of sinners who deserve to cry that cry, who are separated from God, who are worms before the wrathful Almighty. This is all true, but Jesus, in his perfection, steps into that place and takes upon himself the sins of his people who desperately trust in him. And that's why Jesus can cry this in their stead. Jesus experiences an unfectum so that Luther can be freed from it. Now, these are the thoughts that Luther is having about this time. And they help us to understand the next major event of his life, which will be the last we discuss here and will mark the official beginning of the Reformation. Because Luther is lecturing from 1513 to 1517, Psalms, Romans, Galatians, there at Wittenberg. In the year 1517, something very important happens. The Pope declares the sale, really the renewed sale, of plenary indulgences, especially in Germany, but I think across the empire. This happens in 1517. We've mentioned an indulgence before, just so you know what they are. An indulgence had its origins in the Crusades. You know the Crusades where the Pope had declared a holy war against the Muslims who had taken over Jerusalem. This was many years before Martin Luther. There were several crusades to go and to take back the Holy Land. And in order to get knights to go, the Pope had promised a heavenly reward. Any knight who would up and go to fight the Muslims would be granted an indulgence. Meaning, years off of purgatory, just as the relics could give you. A plenary indulgence meant, if you get this kind of indulgence can't do it while you're alive, but if you've died, you have someone who's died, you get a plenary indulgence, that will clear all the years off their record of purgatory and they will go straight into heaven. This is incredibly valuable. Now the crusades had ended, but the church's need for money had not. So they continued indulgences. What ended up happening is there were many people during the Crusades who were not able or willing to actually go and fight. So the church said, it's okay, you can participate and still receive a reward. You just pay to fund the war. So there were many who were paying money and receiving an indulgence. Technically, this was not paying for forgiveness from God. The church technically was teaching the only thing you get from an indulgence is the penalty for forgiven sins, the Pope will remit that penalty, meaning years off of purgatory. But I mean, if you're a peasant living in that day, this is forgiveness from God, and you're paying for it. And so the Crusades end, but that need for money continues, and the church continues to use indulgences. The church, just, it just so happened in 1517, could really use a quick book. Because what had happened was Pope Leo X was the Pope, and we'll, we'll see him more in our story, but Pope Leo X was an elaborate spender. He was a Renaissance Pope. He spent so much money. On top of this, his predecessor had started rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica, this incredible huge cathedral in Rome, but they'd run out of money, and so they had stopped building. Well, Pope Leo X was intent, we'll finish St. Peter's Basilica. So. How does he get a quick buck? He turns to indulgences. He's going to sell these to make money to build this church. As it turned out, one of Germany's bishops 
was also hunting for some political power. He was a bishop of two bishoprics, two areas he controlled as a bishop. But he wanted a third. Because if he got a third, he'd be primate in Germany. He'd have a lot of power. The only problem was, it was illegal, according to the laws of the church, for this German bishop to have a third bishopric. But he knew that money talks in Rome. And the Pope needed some money. So this German bishop struck a deal with the Pope, said, here's the deal. I will borrow the money to pay a huge sum to buy this third bishopric. You make an allowance, give me that bishopric. I will give you that money I borrow. The Pope says, in turn, you can organize the sale of indulgences in Germany and take all that money, use it to pay off your loan, give a little kickback to me. Everybody wins. Bishop, Pope, everybody gets some money. And so in 1517, hawkers of indulgences spread throughout the German region, selling plenary indulgences. Some of these hawkers were infamous in their techniques. You may know the name Johann or John Tetzel. John Tetzel was a hawker of indulgences in Germany, and he had this famous chime, this slogan that he would give as he was appealing to people emotionally to get their nanny or their grandpa or somebody out of purgatory. He'd say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, that soul from purgatory springs. And the money came rolling in. Now, there was only one problem. That problem was Martin Luther. He was a professor but he was more than a professor. He was a parish priest in Wittenberg. He had people he was teaching and caring for as a pastor. And Luther is trying to help them come through the turmoil of soul and find peace. He's studying the Bible and teaching them. When these hawkers of indulgences come, they're not allowed actually in the region Luther is at. Because Frederick the Wise doesn't allow them. But it was easy for any parishioner to just take a little trip and go spend what little money the peasants had to the church and get this piece of paper, this plenary indulgence. Luther was not happy about this. And you may think, well, he wasn't happy because he could see right through the scheme. That's true. He knew the church was just making money off of this. But that was not what upset Luther the most. When he, on October the 31st, 1517, took 95 theses on a large scroll, that's 95 points that he wanted to publicly debate and clarify. When he took those and brought them to the church door in Wittenberg and nailed them there, one of his chief concerns in those 95 theses was not just, well, the church shouldn't make all this money. That was part of it. He was a German, so he appealed to the German people. Why are we giving all our money to Italy, to Rome? That was part of it. But the biggest part for Luther, it seems, even when you read the theses, is this. If the church, really these hawkers of indulgences, he had no problem with indulgences. At this point, in 1517, Luther still believes in the papacy. He still believes in the Holy Mother Church. He just thinks it's being abused by the people selling the indulgences. And his main problem with these hawkers is here they come making light of this, selling this, and manipulating emotionally. And in doing so, they are easing the consciences of people whose consciences should not be eased. The issue in the 95 Theses is an issue of unfectum. Luther himself had experienced the misery of knowing yourself to be a sinner before God deserving of judgment. Yes, the church had wrongly emphasized that for wrong reasons, but that is the biblical teaching. And Luther was just coming through the misery of that experience, and he realized, you know what that experience has done? It has driven me to the Bible. It has driven me to Christ. It has driven me to God. And if I had felt easy about my sin, I wouldn't think another thing about it. He realized when his parishioners went to go pay some money to get an indulgence for their sin or the sins of others, it made sin seem a very small thing. Like just merchandise. You could just buy some grace. Therefore, if someone begins to get troubled, you know, here's Luther the pastor. If he has a parishioner getting troubled in their conscience about their own sin, realizing their need for salvation. He knows that's meant to drive them. He doesn't have the gospel quite clear yet in his head, but he knows that's supposed to drive them in humility before God to ask for salvation. But instead, that person goes maybe across a river 
into a nearby territory, pays some money, gets a piece of paper, sleeps easy that night. The problem is that person's soul is in danger. That sin has not been forgiven. That's merely a remission of purgatory years of forgiven sins. It doesn't actually forgive sin, but the people think it forgives sins. Luther's concern is this takes away the urgency of the need for salvation. This takes away on fectum. Luther cannot stand for it, and he knows, probably, it's just another money-making scheme. That's the worst part. Making money, endangering the souls of his people. The church taught you don't have to be sincere to get an indulgence. As long as you pay the money, it works. So Luther prepares his theses. October 31st, 1517, nails them to the church door. His expectation at this point is not a reformation. It's not what he's thinking. At this point, he's nailing that because he's just beginning to see in his study of the scriptures, this isn't right. People need to feel their sin. He goes and he nails these theses. He just wants a public debate. Very common in that day as a professor. But what happens is the theses are taken and there's a new technology and it's a printing press with movable type. Up to this point, everyone had to handwrite anything you copy. It took forever, cost a lot of money. The printing press of the Gutenberg brothers meant that with some stamps, quickly and inexpensively, you could copy the 95 theses, mass produce them, and send them throughout Germany. Luther did not expect this, but this is what happened. Luther's ideas concerning the abuse of indulgences, the corruption of the church, his challenge for what's happening in the church, strikes a chord with the German people. Suddenly there are these deep stirrings deep in the heart of the German people that are now coming to the surface because this German monk has rung a bell. Little did Luther know what havoc he was unleashing on Europe. He had himself endured through that deep darkness of Unfectun and when he was approaching the other side, he looks at the institutional church and he realizes they're avoiding that. They're about money, power, comfort in this life. And he called her bluff. And now he is about to unleash havoc on Europe by nailing his theses. This is really the word of God beginning to come against the powerful institutional church. The two shall clash and the world will never be the same. Nothing will be the same after this moment and the developments that follow it. The Reformation had begun. So I want to take a few questions concerning this first part of Luther's life before we finish. Anyone have any questions? Yes. Did his father Hans no. ever, ever come to the place where he supported and encouraged Luther? Or was he always disappointed in his son? That's a good question. Marilyn's asking Hans, Luther's father, did he ever come to accept what Luther had done or was he always disappointed? He had come somewhat to accept it. Um, one thing that had happened is Luther was one of eight children. And sometime after Luther had entered the monastery, his father's furious, two of the other sons died. And Hans seems to have interpreted that as kind of a, a discipline from God for his own, like not wanting this to happen. So that does soften him to what Luther has done. So. Yeah. Yes. Not yet. That's coming. Marilyn's giving away what's coming next time. But yeah, as a parent, you can understand wanting your son to do that, especially because there's no social security in this day. There's nothing to fall back on. So either your children support you or you're in the poorhouse or somebody supports you. That's a big thing. Yeah. Good point. Anybody else? Yeah. Just a story on Yeah, 
So Dan is making the point. He at one point found, came across a Bible, I think, in a bookstore and opened it as a Catholic Bible. And in the front, this is a recent Bible, and in the front, whoever the Pope was at the time, written in there, if you read this Bible every day, you will get years off of purgatory. That's good. That's, it's still practiced today. I think if you look at um, the relationship between the Roman Catholic Church today and the medieval Roman Catholic Church, they're not identical. Um, there are differences. In fact, I don't know how much we'll touch on this, but after the Reformation happens, there's a counter-Reformation. The church was already trying to correct some of these abuses, just didn't have the power to do it. It wasn't looking at changing doctrine, which was, Luther said, that's what we need to do. It was more trying to correct morals. So the church today is different in some ways in terms of, you know, where the corruption is and how it looks and so forth. So we can't always just say, that's what the church did, that's what the church is. But any official teaching of the church, including these indulgences, any of the Pope's bulls, any of the councils, those with a few exceptions, um, those stand today. So it's a good point. Still a practice. Yes. Yeah, limbo. So limbo's been... It's gone, if you were aware of that. Limbo was the church taught, and I, I don't know if it was official, but the church had taught that limbo's where infants went pre-baptism if they died. They go into a sort of gray area, not heaven, not hell. That, I believe, has been debunked. Yeah, they say that's not. But purgatory still exists within Catholicism, yes. So Marilyn's expressing, even in her own experiences, hospice, helping people, their reluctance to discuss spiritual things, Catholic, Catholic mm-hmm. to discuss certain things. They don't want to talk about it, and they said they would never do that yeah. because they don't believe that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to me. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, Joel. well be Joel's point you probably heard it but Joel was saying on his grandparents on his father's side growing up there was a uh, priest who would make his rounds in their little town and the priest would come to each house and his I think grandmother would always give the priest some money so he's wondering what that's about and she explained not certain on all the details here but that money it seems was they take it out of their nest egg give it to the church and it would um, get them some years off purgatory it seems Something like that. Now that was really, you're, you're seeing in this the issues that are plaguing. You now the Reformation's coming. The reason the Reformation takes ground so strongly in such a short amount of time is because just how many venues for making money the church had. And this is understandable since the church viewed itself as a political institution. Sort of like taxes. You have to support the bureaucracy. So there were so many. Even, you know, when a, when a uh, bishop would die... The first year of your next bishop, that amount of money, whatever that bishop was to be paid, went to the Pope. There is a one bishop, I believe it was a bishop, who died after only four years, and it was in a, a bishopric that was very expensive. You know, these are political, you buy them. And it was very expensive. He died after a short time, and he, he expressed an apology to the people. He said, I'm sorry I'm dying so quickly because I know you're going to have to pay a huge amount of money to get a new bishop. It's these kinds of ways of making money that make even, you know, the, the broad base of people in Germany and beyond who are going to grab the Reformation, how many of them will really 
believe and understand the gospel, not the majority, most will resonate with the, wow, the church is taking all our money and we don't want to do that. So they'll grab the Reformation for those reasons. So it's still, in a worldly sense, gives the Reformation success whether it's broadly accepted in its doctrinal teachings or not. Maybe one more question before we finish, if anybody has one. Yeah, good question, Tom. Yeah, so he's asking if the Catholic Church still teaches purgatory, and the answer is yes. That is still, the way that, and we'll see this, because we're coming to councils and popes, and Luther's issue with the church, the material cause of the Reformation, it's this wrestling with how can I find relief from my inner turmoil? So justification by faith comes out of that. But he is very concerned as well with questions of authority and questions of, you know, do we listen to the popes and the councils? The issues that had happened, we've already discussed, such as the time there were two, then three popes that excommunicated each other. So what had happened at that point, we didn't discuss this, but when those popes were excommunicating each other, there was a, I don't know, if maybe a minority within the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, even back then in the 1300s, 1400s, that was already pushing for a conciliar view of the church where the pope kind of becomes like a constitutional monarch who's still in charge but he's somewhat restrained by a council of the church um the issue ends up becoming luther sees luther at first goes that direction calls for a council but then he realizes even the councils contradict themselves and so he eventually but in the church any of the places that a council has officially taught something with a few exceptions that's still held today I don't know if there's a way to renounce that. Maybe there is. I'm not as familiar. But so purgatory is still today. All right, let me pray and we will be done. Lord, I thank you very much for this time. And I thank you immensely that you have freed us through the truth. Or we would know nothing more than anyone else. Lord, we would have a night cast over our souls if your truth had not set us free as Jesus promised it would. I thank you for your grace, for freeing us from abject misery forever through the death of Jesus Christ who though he was rich became poor that we might through him become spiritually rich and inherit a kingdom. I pray you'd help us not to turn away from the way of suffering which is necessary in the Christian life not to ease our consciences in a light or a false or artificial way but to apply the blood of Jesus to our consciences and to our sins to see real forgiveness. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.